to Running Through History with Coach Hinterling. Uh, this episode is going to be all about Great Britain. We are moving into comparative politics, and this is the first country that we are taking a deep dive into. And so for Great Britain, you guys, this this podcast is going to be not just an introduction to Britain, but I'm going to give you guys an overview of, um, of Britain, a little bit about their geography, a little bit about their history, and about their political institutions today. And so what you can say about Britain, y'all, is that it has been... Um, and still is one of the most influential and powerful political systems in world history. They are the first country in Europe that is going to develop a, a limited monarchy, you know, a constitutional monarchy after the Glorious Revolution in 1688. Um, and so a lot of people throughout history, as governments have gone through changes, have really looked to England as, as the example, as a big influence over, over, their, over, over democratic countries that we, that we see today. And so when we think about about Great Britain, it is, um, I mean, it's really, th- th- it's three countries. It's going to be England, it's going to be Scotland, and it's going to be Wales. So you guys can take a look at that on, on a map. And so one of the things I want to start with before we jump into the history of it is just a little bit about um, about their geography, which is really, really, really key for them and has helped to shape their political um, history throughout you know, all of time. And so when you think about Great Britain, obviously it is an island. Um, it is far enough away from, from Europe itself um, that has, I mean, has really enabled them to have quite a bit of protection. Throughout history, they have been involved in so many wars. But the first time war ever came to their own country, their own backyard, was when Hitler attacked in, in World War II. And so that has offered them a, a, a large amount of protection because they are an island. Um, and one of the things they have often had as we get into the early modern period is really um, a good navy. Um, one of the things I tell my world history classes in the um, 1700s, if you took all the navies in the world and combined them, England's navies was bigger than all the navies in the world combined. So... It is an island, and that is helpful for protection, but it is actually close enough to allow a lot of interaction and for them to be a very powerful um, player in European history, in European politics, economy, and things like that. Um, not only is it an, an island, but it is, it's relatively small, um, and be, it, as because of its small size, its resources are going to be fairly limited. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, if we think about Europe's, uh, uh, Great Britain's history, why they've gone out and they've colonized so many other lands. One of the things we'll talk about in a little bit is the importance of the Industrial Revolution, and its resources will come into play in, in that. Um, another, one of the last things I want to mention about, about their geography that is pretty key to their um, political history and just their unity as a country is that their geography is really good in terms of their uh, internal geography, I guess you could say. But there aren't any large mountains, there aren't any large deserts, no really big rivers. And so they have been able to, over over time, they've been able to connect themselves in terms of, of transportation, communication, and and things like that. So that's a big, a big part of, of who they are. All right. 
So let's jump into a little bit of just political history because governments, Britain's government has really developed relatively gradually. And so it is, when we think about, about England, they have forever a, a, a monarch. Um, and so what's happened, though, over time that we've seen is that the role of the monarch has changed tremendously. Another thing I want to mention, just right off the bat, before we jump into, 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 into that, is England, Great Britain doesn't have a constitution, which is really weird that a country that has developed, has been an influence in the, in the development of so many other modern democracies, that has never had a written constitution. I mean, yes, we have what is called the, the Magna Carta. If you guys remember what that is, it formed a, a basis of limited government, and it placed some restrictions on the power of monarchs. Um, we have the Glorious Revolution in 1688, which is going to, um, after that, we're going to have a, a, a Bill of Rights. Um, and, it's, and the rights basically are a list that the uh, Parliament, their rights, it's their rights, not really individual ci- citizens, but it's going to be the rights of, um, of Parliament. And that's why today we see Parliament being the V important policy-making institution in Great Britain's government. And then we have what is called common law in Great Britain. And so this is the legal system that is based on local customs and on precedent rather than letter, uh, than literally like formal legal codes. It, is devel- it developed pretty gradually in Britain. And so common law allows basically decisions that public officials and courts make. They set precedent for later actions and decisions and things like that. And eventually that those common laws are going to form a pretty com- comprehensive set of principles for governance. But again, no constitution. So that's pretty 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 wild that that that, that is going to happen. So let's jump in and talk a little bit. Again, we're still in the history of, of of Great Britain here. Talk a little bit about the monarch itself. And so the monarch as I mentioned earlier has been in place for a number of 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 centuries. And as I mentioned with the Magna Carta, that is what's going to place a limit on the the uh the king. And so today, and then after the English Civil War with the Bill of Rights, today the monarch has no decision-making power whatsoever. They are mainly a symbolic. There are symbols in British society. There are symbols in British politics because they have absolutely positively no decision-making power when it comes to, to government. All right, so after the Magna Carta, we have what is called the English Civil War, which I mentioned um, a little bit ago. And so that's going to be this conflict between the king, basically, and parliament. And parliament's going to win in this war, which is wild that this is going to be what happens in this war, the king versus the parliament. And so what's going to happen after that is we do have the Bill of Rights, and that is what is forever going to, to give parliament the the power that they need. So one of the last things we're going to look at here is the Industrial Revolution. And I would say that that is one of the most important parts of their history. The Industrial Revolution um, started in England in the 1700s. And that is, they're going to go through this massive transformation of economy. Their uh, society is going to be transformed because their society is going to go from a very rural, agrarian society to a very urban, industrialized one. There's going to be a development of a working class. I mean, it's an economic transformation, y'all. It's just the factory system is going to be produced. I mean, it's a it's a, a massive change that is going to happen because of of the industrial revolution. Lives are going to be are going to be changed, and so what's going to happen, y'all, is that 
from this industrial revolution, there's a lot of good that comes from it. We have jobs that are being created, cities are being um, are being born. We have goods that are being produced, all kind of really, really, really good stuff. But what also is going to happen in the industrial revolution is how that working class is going to be treated. Because the working class, they're going to be the people, if you guys think back to your U.S. history days in the progressive era, do you guys remember that? That when you think back to that, of how the workers were treated in terms of their working conditions, they're not being paid a minimum wage. You think about their working how long they're working you think about where they're working in the in the the safety measures that were not being taken we think about the tenements that the workers were living in you think about the food you guys remember the meat inspection at Adam Sinclair and the food that was being sold to the working class y'all so I'm referring back to all your A-push stuff but yeah the the working class is going to be treated terribly and so because England is going through industrialization first, all that is happening to them. And so what happens, y'all, during the Industrial Revolution is this idea is going to come about that is called um, the noblesse oblige, which is basically the idea that, of the, that the upper class has the duty to take, the, take responsibility for the welfare of the lower classes. That's what we're doing. And so... What we, what, what we could think about in terms of, at that point in time, their Industrial Revolution, we have the Great Reform Act of 1832, where um, more people are going to be allowed to vote. We have the Re- Reform ba- Act of 1867, which is going to give about 3 million working class people the right to vote. And then we have um, the Women's Suffrage Movement in 1918, which is going to give all men and women over the age of 30 the right to 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 vote so like 8.4 million women are going to be given the right to to vote so because of the industrial revolution and this idea of noblesse oblige where um uh, they again feel the responsibility the upper class feels the responsibility to help out the lower classes we see the electorate expanding but not only do we see the electorate expanding but we also see the government's uh, their their willingness to accept kind of what would be called quote unquote a welfare state and giving support like for instance the 10 hours act which is going to uh, limit the amount of, of hours that somebody can vote child labor laws things like that and then we have things like in England today the national health service where all people are going to have are going to have free health care so that idea is going to to be to to come about during the industrial re- revolution, not healthcare per, healthcare per se, that's going to be later on in the 1900s, but just the idea of the upper class having this obligation to the rest of the population, okay, and including more people in the political process and protecting the, the rights of workers, okay. Like mandatory education is another one that we could that we could think about too. So that's just a, a look there at the Industrial Revolution and what's gonna, how that's going to reflect in terms of their economy and their, and their politics. So we might refer back to that in, in a little bit. All right. What else can we say about their history? Colonialism. They are going to be the colonial power from 1750 to 1914. And that's going to be made possible because of industrialization. If you looked at a map of the world in 1900, y'all... It is it would be covered up in British red. It'd be all over Africa. It would be in Asia. It'd be in the parts of the Middle East. And so that's going to be 
something that's really going to drive their 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 industrialization because we I mentioned earlier in terms of resources really the only thing that England had locally that they had a big access to was they had a lot of coal and a lot of iron but a lot of the other stuff cotton wool spices any other things they are are going to get that from their colonies so they will be think about the phrase British Empire the empire was huge I mean even going to Canada Australia New Zealand did you guys know fun fact that the Queen of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand today is Queen Elizabeth II of England. And there's a, a governor general who sits on the executive branch of each of those governments that represents England, or, or Great Britain, I guess you could say. Fun fact, fun fact. Okay, so that is just a brief little look at, a brief a little, little overview of England and a little bit about their history and where they are are coming from. All right, let's now turn our attention to some of the political institutions and traditions in in Great Britain. Traditions and institutions that have been in place for hundreds of years, those really kind of guide Great Britain's stable democratic regime. The monarch, again, is still, they're technically the head of state, but they don't make any decisions. It's the prime minister and the cabinet. They form the policy-making group of, of Great Britain's democracy. The system is called parliamentary, which means that the prime minister and the cabinet members, they are the ones, they are the members of the legislature. So what I want to do is we're, I'm going to in the rest of the podcast, I want to talk a lot about about all these institutions. And so first up, I want to talk about the linkage linkage institutions. And so if you remember what a linkage linkage institution is, is that link between the government and the citizens. And so we have political parties, interest groups, we have media, things like that, that connect the government to, to, to the citizens. And one of the biggest linkage groups are going to be the political parties. And so there are really two major political parties in Great Britain. One is called the Labour Party, and the other is called the Conservative Party. There are other parties. We're going to talk about the Liberal Democrats. They are a big, a big third party. And then there are some other smaller parties, like in uh, the the Scottish National Party, that's in Scotland, and and Wales has their own political party. So there are a number of political parties, but for the most part, it is a a fairly two-party system. So the Labour Party is the main party on the left. They began as an alliance of trade unions and socialist groups. They have moved kind of towards the center in the 1990s, and they were the majority party in government from 1997 until 2010. And they are are going to be more supportive, for the most part, of of their of of Great Britain's membership in the European Union. And so that really is just a, a brief look at the at the Labour Party. And, and in the 2015 election, they actually had one of the their worst showings that they've had in a long time, the Labour Party did. On the other side of the of the coin, we have the Conservative Party. And they are going to be the main party on the right. All right. Um, they are the people who are going to be a little more traditional, uh, have that belief in that noblesse oblige, as I mentioned a little bit ago. Um, they really kind of want the country to be ruled by the elite, and they are going to be the people who take everybody's interest into account when they make decisions. And there's a big part of the of the conservative party that would call themselves the Thatcherites, after Margaret Thatcher, who was very conservative. They would want to do 
they want to really roll back government controls and move to a full free market society, free market economy. And I would say that the conservative party, y'all, they're the ones who tend to see the European Union as a threat to to, to Britain's um, so- sovereignty. So those are the two main parties. The left is the Labour Party and the right is going to be the conservative party. But then we also have what are called the Liberal Democrats. And this is going to be, actually, they these were actually two parties at one point. There was a Liberal Party and the Social Democratic Party. And they came together to to form a a political party in the 19 in the 1980s. And so they're going to be they're really going to be um this this liberal democratic party. They wanted to be a be a strong middle party. They wanted to kind of see how they could find a compromise between the two major parties, the Labour and the Conservative, how they could go from the Thatcherites, their extreme conservative leadership, and then the Labour's really leftist views and strategies. So they're a little bit more of a, of a, of a, I know it says liberal Democrat, and we probably in America would think of them as being super left, but they are not in, in England. So they try to find a, a balance between the Labour and the Conservative Party. And again, there are some other political parties that I mentioned about the uh, we have the British National Party, the UK Independence Party. So there are a lot of, of third parties that do play a fairly big role in in their politics. Okay, and so that is a look at the at the political parties in in England. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the election system in Great Britain. Great Britain, their parliamentary elections, because that's what people vote for. They don't vote for the prime minister. They vote for the members of parliament. And there are 650 seats total. The British parliamentary elections are what we call like a winner-take-all. There are no runoff elections. And so this is a a little like a single-member plurality system. And so each party will select a candidate to run for each district. And so the person that wins the most votes, they get the position even if he or she does not receive a majority of the votes in the district. And so the British nickname for this system is called, quote, first past the post, um, end quote. And so it's kind of like a, a racehorse. That's where that is going gonna, is gonna to come from. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting for, for MPs or members of parliament um, is they don't have to live in the districts that they represent. So each party decides who runs in each district. So party leaders are going to run in safe districts where they know that their party is always going to win. And so they might, and so in districts where they know they're going to lose, they're going to just kind of, I mean, almost run somebody just to run. They're almost going to be just a, a sacrifice there. And so that is how how elections are, are, are run. And so again, when we think about the prime minister, the prime minister is going to be, is they're known as the first among equals and they are are not again not directly elected by the people but they're a member of parliament and they're the leader of the majority party so the conservative party regained the majority in 2015 and so the conservative party then elected the prime minister they picked the prime minister of of great britain and so that's how that how that system is 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 run. So again, when we think about the elections, which are very different from ours, the party determines who runs and where they're going to run. They don't have to live in the district. Party leaders will often run in safe districts. And so elections are, again, the first past the post, very single member districts. That's how, how it's going to, how elections are going to, are, are going to run. Um, and usually, I think the percentage that we've seen in the last couple elections 
about 70% of eligible voters in, in, in Great Britain are going to are going to vote. And we do have some regional governments to where Northern Ireland, Ireland, they're going to be, they're going to have a, a regional government that is going to, to represent them. Scotland and, and, and Wales, they're also going to have a regional parliament that is going to uh, be a big part of their, of their regional government. What else do they elect? Oh, they're also going to elect people to the, to the EU. So that will also be an election that will happen in Great Britain where they pick people to, to represent them in the, in the EU. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the institutions of the government. Most of the countries in the world today, the British government, they have three branches of government and they do have a bureaucracy. Um, the legislature, the parliament, is divided into two house, houses, which actually the, the British actually invented that idea which many democratic countries have copied over, 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 over time. And so again, it is, I mentioned it's a, it's a parliament, it's a parliamentary system. Um, and so the interactions among the branches of government in England are very different from those in a presidential system such as the United States of America. Because in a parliamentary system, the executive branch is, I mean, it's fused with the legislative branch because the prime minister and the cabinet are the leaders of parliament. So um, there's separation of powers, if you think about in the United States of America, between our executive branch and the cabinet and then the legislative branch. It does not exist in England. And then we'll talk about the judiciary in, in a little bit, too. So we're going to talk about all of this. So when we think about, about, the, about the cabinet and the prime minister, the cabinet is the prime minister and other, other ministers, which head up the bureaucracy of the government. Um, again, the cabinet members are party leaders from parliament, and they're chosen by the prime minister. And the collective cabinet, they are the center of policy making in the British political system. And the prime minister's job is to, is to shape those decisions that the collective cabinet makes into policy. So the cabinet doesn't vote, per se, and all the members publicly support the prime minister's decisions. So in other words, the leaders of the majority party el- that are elected by the people they take the quote-unquote collective responsibility for making policy for the country, okay? So the unity of the cabinet is very important for the stability of the government. The prime minister, I think I mentioned this earlier, is, the, is what is called the first among equals, but she is the head, he or she is the head of this, of the government. Again, prime minister not directly elected by the people, but they are a member of, of parliament and they're the leader of the majority party, and so when we think about the prime minister and their role, they serve only as long as he or she remains the leader of the majority party or the coalition. They, again, are elected as a member of parliament. They have a really good chance, because they are a member of the majority party, of getting their programs passed um, in parliament. They speak for all members of parliament. Um, as I said earlier, they choose all the cabinet members. What else can we say? They campaign for and they represent the party in all elections, in parliamentary elections. So yeah, so that is is a big part of, of that of that part of of parliament, the cabinet and the prime minister. Okay, so when we look at parliament, there are are two houses in in parliament. So I mentioned six hundred and fifty members of parliament 
Parliament a minute ago. That is really just going to be in the House of Commons. Because the two houses, the two the two uh, different branches of um, of Parliament are going to be the House of Commons and then the House of Lords. So I'm going to start with the House of Lords real quick because I'm not going to say too much about that. Because the House of Lords have, I mean, they really don't have any party whatsoever. Very, very, very little power. This is the only hereditary parliamentary house in existence today. So it was originally part of, the, of a parliament and had a lot of influence, but today its influence is very, very, very little. And there are about, good grief, how many? 794 members of, um, of the House of Lords. Um, and again, it is going to be hereditary. <laughs> so it's passed down through family ties over the centuries. Yeah, that so that's going to be really what we're going to look at with the with the House of of Lords. They can they can add amendments to legislation, but the House of Commons can delete their changes by a simple majority vote. So there really is not not much that they can can do. And so that's actually kind of a, a critique of the British parliamentary system because it's the other house, the House of Commons, with the 650. I mean, that really is, that's Parliament. I mean, that's where the MPs, the, the ministers of Parliament are. That's where the Prime Minister comes from. So the criticism of the British parliamentary system is that there is a lack of separation between the Prime Minister and the legislature. So it creates a really dangerous concentration of power since both of those are going to be controlled by the same party. And there's no executive branch, in, like in America, to keep that in in check. Um, it's efficient. Um, you don't really have the, the gridlock that we could find in um, our Congress today. Not just our Congress, but between our legislative and our executive branch, where our Congress can pass something, but the president can veto it. So you don't have that in, in, um, in Britain. So it really is going to be the the House of Commons that is the is they are the rule makers, okay? They're the people who are in charge of the of the government. All right, so when we think about about parliament, about the House of of Commons, they have substantial power because they debate and they refine potential legislation. They're the only ones who can who may become party leaders and ultimately head the government. They're the people who scrutinize the administration of laws. Um, they keep communication lines open between voters and ministers. I mean, they are, they're the real deal. They're the people who are going to make a majority of the decisions when it comes to, to legislation in, um, in, the, in, the Brit- in the British system of government. But as I said earlier, there is a bureaucracy. And so Britain has hundreds of thousands of civil servants who administer laws and deliver public services. Um, A lot of civil servants, they do clerical work and they do other routine work of of a large bureaucracy. But there are a few hundred what are considered to be higher civil servants who directly advise ministers and who oversee work of the departments. So they actually coordinate and implement the policies that the cabinet members set. British bureaucracy is relatively stable. It's a powerful force in the political system. And the people who are, the again, the upper-level bureaucrats, they always make a career of government service, and they usually are experts in their their area. And so they are very influential to to Parliament. They're the people who are going to um, help Parliament. Uh, the House of Commons make a lot of the decisions that they're going to make in terms of of um, of policy. All right. 
So the top civil servants in the bureaucracy have a great deal of input into policymaking. So when we think about about the cabinet, each of the cabinet, um, each of the each of the ministers, the MPs who who lead the um, a particular cabinet, they rely heavily on the advice of the bureaucrats. Okay, the bureaucrats almost never run for public office. They're not active in party politics. They are plain and simple. They are are experts, and they will advise um, the members of um, of parliament. So the next branch of government that I want to talk about is the judiciary. And so when we think about judiciary, about the judiciary in Great Britain, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, which basically means the parliament's decisions are final, they, th- this principle has limited the development of judicial review. So the judiciary, the court, really, they don't have the ability to decide whether or not actions or laws or other court decisions are unconstitutional. What the judiciary in Britain does, uh, they really can only determine whether government decisions violate the common law or other acts of parliament, previous acts of parliament. And even then, when that happens, the courts tend to rule very narrowly because they will defer to the authority of parliament. So by English tradition, by British tradition, the courts may not impose their rulings on parliament, the prime minister, or the cabinet. Because the British legal system is based on common law, not code law. So again, like I said, there is no constitution in, in, in the UK. All right, and just as a reminder that I said earlier that the British legal system is based on common law, not a code law. There's no constitution in, in the UK. Okay? And so what's happened is for a long time we had, uh, England had what was called the Law of Lords. Um, they were members of the House of Lords who were designated as the highest judicial authority in Great Britain to settle disputes from the lower courts in Great Britain. But what's going to happen is in 2009, there, and this is wild that this just happened in, in, in 2009, that in 2009 a Supreme Court was created to replace the Law of Lords as the highest judicial authority in the UK. And so the court is going to consist of a president and 11 justices who are appointed by a panel of lawyers. And their chief function, their chief job, is to serve as the final court of appeal on points of law in cases across the country. Okay? So the British Supreme Court, you know, it's it's going to have more authority than the law lords that were previously around prior to 2009. But their authority is very limited to com- compared to SCOTUS um, in the United States of America. So again, it can nullify government actions if they are judged to exceed powers granted by an act of parliament, but it cannot declare an act of parliament unconstitutional. Parliament remains the supreme authority under the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. So that really is, so again, just everything defers back to parliament. The only other thing I want to say about about the judicial system in in Great Britain is that um, they're actually pretty important when it comes to Britain's membership in the EU. So when it comes to the European Union, the judges in the Supreme in the in the Supreme Court, one of their responsibility is to make sure that Great Britain is is following the the European Union laws and that the laws of the UK do not conflict with the European laws, so that's one of the of the jobs of the supreme of the Supreme Court, because Britain. Well, we'll see what happens with what's going to happen in the coming years in terms of Brexit. Is that a part of Great Britain being a member of the EU? Is they had to follow the European 
unions, treaties, and, and laws. So we'll see what happens with that in the in the coming years. So in this unit, you guys are going to take a look at, at, at Brexit um, as Great Britain has voted to to remove themselves from it. So you guys are going to take a deep dive into into that in this in this unit. One idea, one last idea that I want to bring up that has uh, become a really big deal in in Britain's history in the recent years is that when we think about the British government, most of the authority is going to come from London. But one of the things I mentioned earlier is you know the UK is not just England. It is also Scotland, it is also Wales, it is also Northern Ireland. And so an idea that you guys need to understand is what is called devolution. So I briefly mentioned that a minute ago, a little bit ago, about there are going to be regional governments that are going to be set up in Scotland, in Wales, and in Northern Ireland, Ireland, and that is what devolution is. It's the turning over of some political powers to regional governments. And so that has been... A really, a really, really big deal because there's been a, a lot of conflict between England and Northern Ireland, and, and then Scotland, and then and then Wales, where there has been um, a movement in these places to not only have regional government, but to eventually, in some in some instances, they want their independence. That Scotland does not want to to answer to London, that they don't want you know Parliament to be making their their um, their choices. Um, 2015, Sc- Scotland actually voted for for independence. There was a um, a referendum, and it was nearly defeated. So they tried it in in um, in 2015. Wales is pretty. They do have a regional government for the most part. They accepted English authority a long time ago, but there is a little bit of of resentment there. One of the problems between England and Ireland, in particular Northern Ireland, Ireland that we're going to see is there's a lot of, of tension over um, over religion. And, you know, Ireland itself, Ireland, not Northern Ireland, was granted home rule in um, shortly after World War One, And they're going to be to be granted home rule, which means that they are are um, are going to be are going to be into independent. They are a, a, a free state. But Northern Ireland is going to remain under British control. But again, one of the biggest conflicts there is going to be the conflict between Protestants and and um, and Catholics. And I guess one last thing that we could probably say is that they are, that the people are dealing with, is, um, you know, Brexit, which you guys are going to take a, a look at when, um, in the, in the unit, but one of the, of the issues that England faces today, and this kind of has, has been rearing its head when it comes to to Brexit, is the number of minorities um, that live in in Great Britain. That there has been in the, gosh, in the, really in the 20th century, I guess you could say. In the 20th century, there has been a number of, of immigrants moving into um into into England. And so according to the 2011 census, about 13% of, Br- of the British population is of non-European origins, mostly coming from countries that were formerly British colonies. The main groups um, that we have in, in, in England are going to be about 3% are going to be black, and that could be African, people from the Caribbean, what have you, so about 3% of the population. 
about two, a little about two and a half percent of the population are going to be from um, from India. About two percent of the population are going to be from Pakistan, and then there's going to be a mixture everywhere, everywhere else. Um, and so, p- part of Brexit, you know, a lot of people have kind of accused Britain of adjusting very poorly to what is becoming a a multi-ethnic um, population. Um, and again, that's part of of what we're going to see with with uh, with Brexit. All right, so that is a a look at at England. I'm trying to think of what else maybe you you need to know, but I think that's a good look here at um, at the British system of of government. So I hope this has helped you guys in your understanding of of Great Britain. All right, thanks for listening.